Today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, April 17th. It's great because we have a draft to talk about. More specifically, we have an auction to talk about that Beller and I were a part of on Wednesday. It's part of a three-part league and it's a charity league that I thought of this concept probably back in the winter and realized as the spring was playing out that putting something together for charity would be a great way to help people in need and also really kind of fill some empty calendars in April as far as our drafts go. I mean, none of us expected a season like the one that we're dealing with right now. Uh, So we're going to talk about what happened in the mixed league auction. And uh, I'm just going to ask you a kind of a general question, Beller, as we get started. Like, How much did having an auction this week temporarily make the world seem normal. It was great. It was nice to uh, have that ability for a couple of hours to pretend like this was the most important thing uh, that was happening in my life that day and to pretend like or to think it that we could be evaluating these players and these fantasy teams as we would have in a normal season or as we would have as recently as you know six or seven weeks ago. So it, it was really fun. It wasn't just a distraction. It was uh, just you know, pure fun to get together and, and uh, with 14 other people uh, talking about a sport that we love, uh, consuming it in a way that we really enjoy. It was a nice thing to do, and uh, it produced some pretty interesting results, so I hope it's something that we get to see come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. Some really interesting teams that were put together on Wednesday night. We're going to have an AL auction coming up this Wednesday, and then NL-only auction the following Wednesday, and then we're going to tally up standings position, not standings points, but standings position across all three leagues to determine an overall winner. Uh, All of the proceeds for the league are going to a food pantry in southern Wisconsin called Second Harvest. And if you want to make a donation, you can go to Feeding America, at Feeding America on Twitter. There's a donate button there. You can donate to a food pantry near you or to Feeding America's general fund. So definitely a great time to help those in need if you're able to do it. Let's talk about some of the basics of drafting in the current setup. And what I mean by that is to build a team for whatever the 2020 season could be, you almost have to choose your own adventure and construct the season in your head and then play to the season you constructed. The first thing you have to decide is length. You know, How, how long is the season really going to be? And maybe we're reaching a point now we're pretty realistic about the earliest possible return date of baseball, and it's almost uh, impossible to see it happening before early June, where we can kind of shorten the season enough to where shortening it more doesn't change a whole lot, if that makes sense, where uh, the prospects who have innings restrictions or guys coming back from Tommy John surgery, 
if we're looking at 81 games, even versus 100 games, I'm not sure there's a big difference in season length. I think that's kind of where I'm at is more like 81. What was the mindset you had as far as how long this season is going to be as you were sitting down to auction Wednesday night? Yeah, I think the easiest way to think about it is just as a half season, almost the way we think of the first half and the second half, even though we know that it's not a perfect 81 games before the All-Star break and 81 after it. I think we're basically operating on half of a season if there is going to be a season. So I think you're right that we've already crossed the Rubicon in terms of uh, players who uh, were maybe going to have innings limits that uh, they've already reached the point where they're not going to hit that innings limit. Players who were injured to start the season, someone like James Paxton, uh, someone like Justin Verlander, they're going to be healthy by time the 2020 season begins, if it does begin. So we can uh, already now, if it's going to be you know 70 games, 90 games, 110 games, whatever it might be, uh, we can take the players at face value. So I, I didn't make any huge changes based on that. I think we already know what the length of the season will be if there is going to be a season, and that gives us a little bit of comfort as we are sitting and drafting auctioning teams uh, still with the hope that the season does uh, take off this year. So season length, that's one adjustment that you had to have made since you know things mm-hmm. stopped back in March. But the other adjustment is much more difficult because Major League Baseball has offered up a few different proposals so far, not necessarily to the public, but they've been reported upon by you know, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic and uh, Bob Nightingale of USA Today had some, some potential divisions that he put out there about a week or so ago. We're getting... We're getting the sense that the most plausible 2020 MLB season is one that's played entirely in Arizona or between Arizona and Florida, where teams are basically going to use their spring training homes as their regular season homes for this abbreviated year. And that's where it gets really dicey, because if that's the most likely outcome, but it's not a certain outcome you really have to weigh the likelihood of that being the plan uh, against the various prices you're willing to pay for players, and especially at the extremes, right? I mean, I think the first thing that came to my mind as I started dissecting the player pool in an all-Arizona season was Coors Field. You know, what happens to the Colorado hitters when they don't get the boost from playing at Coors anymore? And then what happens to those pitchers when they don't have to deal with that park? for half of their starts, but it goes far beyond those two teams. So were there adjustments like that that you started to make in your game plan, given what seems like the increased likelihood of of a season played entirely in Arizona or Arizona and Florida? Yeah, maybe on the margins, really, but that's that's about it. I think that you know, no player is completely made or undone by his home ballpark. A great player is a great player, and maybe Nolan Arenado gets a few extra homers um, by virtue of playing 81 games uh, at Coors Field. Maybe Herman Marquez is hurt a little bit more by uh, pitching, you know, generally half of his starts in Colorado. But I think a player still is his underlying skill set. And you take Nolan Arenado out of Colorado, he's still going to be a pretty damn good hitter. It doesn't really matter where that guy is swinging a bat. He's going to be swinging it pretty mightily. Uh, So I I think maybe it comes in where you would go the extra dollar on a guy. Or maybe you would hold back a dollar on Trevor Story or on Nolan Arenado, but it's not something where I'm going to make this huge sweeping difference, and that was how I went into this auction. I basically treated guys as though this was a normal 
season played at their regular home parks because I think that the the uh, changes that come to their games based on where these this season actually is going to be played is just you know barely it, it's like it's a droplet in this huge basically in the ocean of who these guys are as baseball players so I didn't change things really all that much I tried to keep a mindset that the players are who they are they are who we knew them to be coming into the season who we expected them to be and I didn't really let where the games are going to be played change my evaluations of them all that much and ended up being a pretty on-brand uh, auction for me where I ended up getting a lot of guys who, who I like regardless of where baseball is going to be played this season yeah so you had a couple buys very quickly I'm looking at the report that shows all the players in the order in which they were sold. Chris Bryant was the second player nominated in the auction. You got him for $27. Uh, just a few players later, Mike Trout comes up. You paid 51 to get him. So you spent 78 out of 260 within the first 10 minutes of the auction starting. Uh, and that happens sometimes in, in mixed leagues. I, I, I think I do that quite a bit. Uh, I know you love Chris Bryant. I mean, you're a Cubs fan, and Chris Bryant's good. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> he is, uh, yeah. And, and you know, Mike Trout's always fun to buy as well. But did you have those two guys outlined as unique targets? I guess it's a broader question. Like, do you go into an auction with several players at each position highlighted as actual targets, or do you go in with the more agnostic sort of approach of, of bidding on players until you're just uncomfortable bidding any higher? Um, a little of both, but I do go in with knowing guys who I like and wanting to get them. I mean, that's part of the benefit of an auction, that you can have anyone on your team you want so, you want, so long as you're willing to pay for them. So even though you do have to be a little bit player agnostic and, and like the value of a guy relative to where he's going and relative to what he's going against uh, the room's average, I still do try to go in and get some of my biggest targets because I trust the work that I've put in before an auction, before a draft during draft prep season I, I trust my evaluations and I want to ride with those you know I, I want to ride with my guy even if it maybe it means paying a couple of extra bucks for him rather than riding with someone who I don't necessarily love but you know the room said that there was a value to be had there and I actually ended up getting in trouble with someone on that we can talk about him a little bit later Chris Bryant was someone who I've been going after in every single draft and auction this year uh, I was actually the one who nominated him to DVR so not only did I end up with him but I nominated him and because of where he stands coming into the season, I wanted to get him out there early because I feel as though if you get someone who people don't view as an elite player, but is obviously a very good player, I think that they are values. They're, they can more often than not be a value play early on in an auction because people see someone like Chris Bryant, they think, you know, in a draft, he's what about a, a late third and early fourth round pick. He's about you know pick number forty overall. This is someone who I'm happy to have on my team, but I'm not going to extend myself. We've still got Mike Trout to think about, Christian Yelich, uh, Ronald Acuna, Jacob Degrom, Garrett Cole. There's still a lot of elite players, and I'm not going to extend myself twenty five, twenty seven dollars uh, and feel as though I already have to start maybe playing defense against some of these other bids out there. So I like to get those uh, those like early mid or, or yeah early. Early mid-round guys out there early, and that's where Bryant has fallen. I, I do like to be aggressive on on my targets and auctions, even if I end up paying what the room would say is a couple of bucks more for them. Yeah, I, I tend to go about things the same way. At least I have my guys who are more likely to end up on my team than not. And it always feels strange when you have 
as much flexibility as you get in an auction to buy a couple players you don't like. So I'm kind of curious, who did you get stuck with? Uh, it sounds like you may have been price enforcing a little bit and ended up with a player that you absolutely did not expect to get. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a price enforce, and it was also I, I just I, I didn't see the bidding just stopping cold the way it did on Aaron Nola, who I ended up getting for twenty dollars, and I like Aaron Nola, um, but it was more just the fact that uh, yeah, I thought I uh, the, the bidding was going pretty pretty consistently as it built up to twenty bucks on him. I didn't end, think I would end up with him. I thought it would keep climbing from there, and I didn't necessarily mind it at the time, but then I, I guess I really. Uh, underestimated what the market was going to look like for pitchers. And if you would have told me that Aaron Nola and Luis Castillo were going to go for the exact same price, that Brandon Woodruff was going to go a couple of bucks cheaper than those guys, that Tyler Glasnow was going to go a couple of bucks cheaper than those guys, then I don't think I would have thrown that uh, that $20 bid out there on Aaron Nola. It ended up looking worse in retrospect than it was in the moment, and it, it hamstrung me in a little bit of the way that I was able to go about building pitching the rest of the way, but uh, it was still a guy who I was comfortable having on my team. It was just it looked worse once some of those other names uh, that I liked better than Nola started to come off the board, uh, and that's just sort of uh, the game in auctions. Yeah, the order in which players are sold. I've said this before. It's really important to kind of have in order to get the proper context of why certain players may have gone for more or less than expected. I think uh, one of the more common comments that I saw as there were some reactions to this auction after it happened. Uh, they were focused on Bo Bichette going for 31 and Fernando Tatis Jr. going for 29. And I'm pretty sure the order played a role in Tatis going for a bit less because if you if you threw them around the same time, you threw them back to back, I would assume that Tatis generally goes for more. If there's a gap there and the quality uh, quality players have run off the board and there aren't as many options to spend money on, if you got a lot of money left, you go the extra couple dollars on a player like Bichette and suddenly he costs more than Tatis. So I wouldn't look at these results and say Vlad Sedler and Rob Silver, who, who bought those two players, believe that Bo Bichette is better than Tatis. They probably believed at the time that they could spend a few extra dollars to get Bo Bichette, and it wasn't going to hurt them later because of the way other pieces had fallen into place. Yeah, and that's the the key to evaluating any auction, right? No auction is carried out in a vacuum, and so much of uh, the room uh, drives what ends up happening as you get, even just like, I, I mean, I feel like it only takes you know, 15 or 20 players to come off the board before what has already happened is going to have a downstream effect on the rest of the proceedings. And then that becomes a moving target, right? I mean, that's always changing depending on who gets thrown out, how many positions start to get filled up uh, when you reach the end of a tier of a position and someone feels like they really need to get in on that spot. I, I think the position you're going to see that happen at the most this season is first base uh, where uh, it, it's, it's shallower than it's been in recent seasons. And you start to feel as though you are going to get shut out of a guy who you feel comfortable starting 
relatively early at that spot. And, uh, you know, I ended up going $14 on Reese Hoskins as my first baseman. And he was one of the last guys I, I felt good about. Um, he, he happened to hit that perfect spot where he was one of the last guys thrown out. Uh, also at the position that I felt good about. I was surprised to see the bidding stop so cold on him, too. I thought I was going to have to fight a couple of extra bucks for him, and if I had to, I would have been willing to because it's a position where I don't want to get left out, and it feels easy to get left left out this season. I had this thought back in Tout Wars season, uh, so March, <laughs> mid-March, feels like a, a <laughs> lifetime ago, but uh, that's an OBP league. This is a normal 5x5 five five league that we're a part of. And I was looking at some projections for Pete Alonzo. And I was looking at projections for Reese Hoskins. And especially when you are playing in an OBP league, you realize the difference between those two guys is probably a lot smaller than the current difference in price in auctions uh, and in snake drafts. And I don't know if that means that the projections are too high on Reese Hoskins or if they're too high on Alonzo or if they're too low on Alonzo. I'm trying to figure out what exactly that means and and apply it. But so far, I don't have Alonzo or Hoskins on any of my teams this draft season. I'm O for the draft season on both players. And it seems like, based on my observation, the move would probably be to take the occasional chance on Hoskins because... Consciously, I'm a bit of an Alonzo skeptic. I have a hard time believing that he can bring anything more to the table power-wise than what we saw in his impressive rookie season a year ago. But even if he regresses to being a 40-home run guy in a full season, that's still going to flirt with being a league-high total. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he's a a batting average liability necessarily. I don't think he's ever going to be plus in batting average, but... Maybe he could be. I mean, double A and lower, he was under 20% with his K rates. What do you make of those two guys compared to each other? Because there was a time not that long ago when we were all a lot more excited about Reese Hoskins, and they do fundamentally have some pretty similar skill sets. Yeah, they do. And I'll tell you what, uh, if I can get Reese Hoskins for 14 as I did in this auction versus Pete Alonzo for $28, which is where he went to Alex Becky, I'm taking Hoskins every single day. I was actually a bit of a, of a Hoskins skeptic going into last season um, because of some of the underlying skills, because of the fact that he uh, had a strikeout rate that was uh, up above 22.5% last season, and or in 2018, excuse me, and uh, comfortably above 20% for his career. It felt like a guy who was getting by uh, solely on the power production, which is not a bad thing to get by on, of course, but I wanted to see a little bit more from him. Uh, we didn't see it last year, but it's not like he lost the, the the charms that he had going into 2018. He still hit 29 homers last year, still drove in 85 runs, scored 86 runs, and walked a ton. You mentioned this is a standard 5x5, five five, but all I mean by that is that the guy who he was going into 2019 basically showed up and just had a worse batting average. So I felt like the 2019 version of Hoskins was overpriced, and the 2020 version of Hoskins is now just fairly priced. I'm not expecting him to suddenly become, you know, a 260 hitter, even necessarily. Nothing he has shown us in his career suggests that that is something he sustains over a full season. But I think that getting a 240 or 245 hitter who's going to hit 30 home runs in a 162-game sample with 80-plus RBI and 80-plus runs, that's a totally fair price to pay for him. And I think there's more risk of 
Alonzo being that brand of player than there is the uh, the upside of him being a consistent 45-plus homer year in, year out. And that's basically what you're paying for for him this year. So I think that with where they're being taken and how they're being priced, Hoskins is the easy play for me between those two. I think the similarities for me kind of go back to what we saw from Hoskins in 2017 when he first broke into the league. The key difference here is that we're talking about uh, a sample that's about one-third the size of what Alonzo offered as a, mm-hmm. a rookie last season, but that was the best we ever saw of Reese Hoskins in terms of barrel rate. He was at 13.5%. It was the best exit velocity we've seen at 90.9 miles per hour. Just for comparison, Alonzo as a rookie last season had a 15.8% barrel rate, which uh, was top 3% of the league, and a 90.6 mile per hour exit velocity. The key difference, I think, in the last couple of seasons for Reese Hoskins has been the launch angle has been too high. Like he's he's hitting too many fly balls uh, and probably too many weak fly balls sprinkled in there as well. Uh, but I just think it's it's come to a point for me with with Alonzo. I think I could end up with him in an auction. There's no way I would end up with him in a snake draft where you have to choose him as somebody who goes probably at the end of round two or beginning of round three more often than not. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And that, that's just a, a fun thing about auctions versus drafts is that it is a a way that, you know, to, to use your phrase from earlier, it's a choose-your-own-adventure path. And you used it in reference to how this 2020 season is going to play out. But it's also true just of auctions generally in that you can go after certain guys. And depending on how the market works out, it just might end up being someone who you don't necessarily love where their draft stock is, but the way your auction room plays out, he ends up being available to you at what would not correspond to a similar draft price. And that's just part of the fun of an auction. And I'm wondering, as I look up and down your roster, if there was anyone who fit that bill for you, someone who you did end up with that you wouldn't necessarily be interested in in a draft or as we're talking about with me with Chris Bryant someone who you did go after aggressively no matter what the price was yeah I, th- I think in this case there there's not any player who meets that description but there are plenty of them who exist where um, if Fernando Tatis Jr. is probably the first player this draft season who I came to the point of saying I'm not taking him at the end of round one in a snake draft but I bought him an NL Labor uh, as a $28, $29 player, I think it was. That was about eight years ago, I think, if I'm uh, approximating time correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> but uh, as I looked at my team, the only player who I look at on the entire roster who's not really been one of my guys this draft season is Christian Walker. And it, it was a little bit of the first base isn't quite as deep as you think uh, that you were talking about before. We got to a point late in the auction, I either had the hammer or I had the second most money, and I was a little bit worried that there wasn't enough in terms of quality players left for me to spend the money on. And I was running the Rotowire draft software. I've used it for years. I just like having that to manage what everybody's doing and kind of keep tabs on best available players. And I think at that point, Walker was still about a 12 or a $13 player. And people didn't have enough money left to spend that much, so mm-hmm. I, I got him for seven. He, he was kind of a necessary use of the money I'd saved, and I'd saved money almost accidentally. I mean, I I, I didn't want to overpay for saves. That was something that I 
really didn't want to do because I have a, a very Stars and Scrubs build. I think a lot of teams went that route. And I felt like that was an area where I could save a little bit and still come out with a roster just as good as anybody else's. I never, never really landed the bargain closers I wanted. I mean, I basically punted saves in the end. I didn't plan on doing that going in. I thought I was going to get Hansel Robles for eight bucks. I thought I was going to get Will Smith maybe for five. And as each of those players came off the board, and a lot of times they were they were spread out by a few nominations. I just got a little bit conservative and, and peeled away from the bidding. And maybe maybe there's a series of mistakes there. Maybe I should have hit the plus one and just taken my medicine and overpaid for somebody just to have more saves. We're not allowed to trade in this league. But uh, I, I looked at Christian Walker as a guy that probably is underrated right now. He had a, a really funky mm-hmm. beginning to last season. His, I think his March and April were excellent his may was bad and then he was just kind of like normal from there on out but 13.1 percent barrel rate 91.1 average exit velocity so the stat cast numbers are good the playing time is not really a major concern i mean the biggest the biggest concern about christian walker is that we just don't have a track record of him doing this in the big leagues he tore up triple a for several years is he is he a guy you trust at the price because if you miss on a seven dollar player you could still win your league with ease, like you can, right. you can make mistakes at that point. You can make mistakes well after pick two hundred on a player like this. But is he one of your targets if you are missing out on the first baseman you like earlier? He absolutely is, and he was someone who I had in the back of my mind as filling out my corner infield spot. I, I uh, got pretty aggressive in the corners. You mentioned Bryant uh, early, and then I took Yoan Moncada relatively early as well. Another one of my guys, another one of the targets who, in an auction, if I have to go a couple of bucks over what the average auction value is for him, so be it, because I think that he just keeps building and building and building and has an excellent year uh, this year. And I was able to get Hoskins, so I felt, felt very good, but Christian Walker was one of those corner infield guys who I thought maybe I would have a shot at. I was dealing with a, a pretty low budget uh, relatively early on, as you referenced with those Bryant and Trout buys early, and so ultimately I wasn't able to really challenge you at all for Christian Walker, but I do like him as a fallback option at first base and as a very easy starting corner infielder. Um, I, I believe in the power, as you said, he showed it multiple years in the minors and then showed it pretty much right away last year. I think the if you are going to get concerned about Christian Walker, it's a combination of what you said with the lack of a track record at the major league level combined with the fact that they have a ready-made replacement in Jake Lamb, uh, who they want to get some playing time. I talked with our Diamondbacks beat writer, Zach Buchanan, about that, and he said that even though it's Walker at first and Escobar at third uh, as the default lineup, they were going to try to work Jake Lamb in, and you could see a scenario in which Walker struggles, Jake Lamb gets back to being the player that we've seen him be in previous seasons, and suddenly that first base situation flips. That is not an unheard of scenario to play out for the Diamondbacks this year. So I think that's really where the risk comes in, the fact that they would have an option should Walker get off to a slow start. And Escobar's not going to be the guy left behind, right? I mean, either one of those guys, Walker or Lamb, could play third base in a pinch, but Escobar's in the lineup no matter where it is. And, you know, uh, uh, Ketel Marte is in that lineup. Nick Ahmed, an amazing glove at short. He's in that lineup. You're not going to sacrifice the glove necessarily to move Escobar over to short and get both Walker and Lamb out there. So it really is a first base or nothing situation for those two guys, uh, and that's where I get a little bit concerned with him. But I think we saw enough from Walker last year to feel pretty good about where he is in a draft, in an auction, the price that you pay for him this season. It seemed like this room 
was more conservative than most of the auctions I've been in. 100%. Uh, especially industry auctions, but even some of the, the leagues I've been in where it's not necessarily all people who play in Towers, Labor, and different things like that, NFPC, they're, there's still this over-aggressive tendency in those rooms, and then you get bargain after bargain in the end game, and there's always going to be players that go for a few bucks that you really like in a mixed league. But even on my roster, I think I have four $1 players. That's got to be the lowest total of $1 players I've had on a mixed league auction roster in, in several years. Uh, and I'm looking over the results. At, I don't see $1 players on many rosters who should have been a lot more expensive than that. Uh, I, I just think it's a, a testament to the group as a whole for not going overboard, not spending like drunken sailors in the first <laughs> hour, which is, that's Tout Wars in a nutshell. The mixed Tout Wars auction is bananas now, and you get 8 to 10 $1 players at the end of the auction who are probably 7 or $8 players in some valuation systems. Yeah, and you can look at my team actually as the, the opposite of that and almost as a cautionary tale because I ended up with 1, 2, 3, 4... Five, six, seven, one dollar players uh, in the auction, and I, I got to be honest. I felt there were, we were about halfway through, and I felt like you know if I've got this little money left, I, I feel like I should have a few more big names on the team, and it, it spoke to the fact that I came out so aggressively, and then uh, wasn't able to participate when some of those guys who were going in between the elites at the you know you know mid forty to fifty level and the very good but not quite great. Uh, in the 20 to 25 range. I really wasn't able to play in between those two levels. And, you know, in, in a lot of auctions, that's going to work out okay. In this one, I feel like it left me a little bit behind. You mentioned Bryant. We mentioned Mike Trout. Uh, who's my next guy in a draft? Maybe Chris Paddock at $22. Yohan Moncada at 23 Paddock's got a higher um, uh, average draft position. I've got Tommy Pham at twenty. Like, those are my next guys. So you don't if you if you tried to lay that out in draft form, right? You don't necessarily have like a third rounder, a fourth rounder, a fifth rounder. And of course, auctions aren't going to work out like that. But it did. You know, where the 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 way the room worked ended up working. I think against my ultra aggressive early on strategy. I've always been afraid that would happen to me in Tout Wars where. I'd go too aggressive early, the entire room would be more cautious, and then I would be chasing production late, and I'd end up with uh, discounted players who just don't do enough, and then basically you're you're stuck chasing on the waiver wire all season. You're trying to make up playing time, you're trying to make up pretty much every category that way. Uh, the way. The way mine fell into place, I think I was okay with it. I, I just think I maybe... Maybe notice what the room was doing early enough to not buy that one more player that would have put me into dollar days a lot sooner. And that really helped because there was a little run, I think in the last hour, where I was able to buy four out of five players in a row. It was a stretch of like Andrew Heaney for five, Max or Mitch Keller for five, uh, Kyle Tucker for eight, and I think it was Evie Seal Garcia for six or something like that. And I went from having like 60 bucks to 25 in a matter of four players. <laughs> and uh, th that was that kind of like made me feel better because I, I got a whole bunch of guys I liked really quickly. And I, I was kind of able to shed the 
I didn't spend enough money early fear that was starting to come mount mm-hmm. for me as we were moving through the, the last hour or so. How do you feel about Acuna at 48, who you got there? As you mentioned, I got Trout for 51, Yelich went for 55, and Yelich went first of the three. Uh, so I was really surprised. I can't remember if it was Acuna or Trout next, but I can tell you that as the bidding for Trout was going up, I just had that 55 number in mind for Yelich. And I was really surprised to see the bidding for Ye- for Trout after Yelich was gone stop $4 cheaper than what Yelich is. And you can say what you will about who you would rather have between the two guys, but uh, I don't think there's you know really any gap, let alone a $4 gap between the two. Um, so I was surprised to see Trout stop at 51. How did you feel about Acuna at 48? I was really happy about that. So yeah, the order was Yelich was the third overall player thrown. Acuna was mm-hmm. seventh, so I bought him at 48. I couldn't believe it stopped at 48. Uh, I just bought Scherzer as the sixth player off the board for 36. So... Yeah, I spent $84 in seven minutes, which, uh, again, that's that's on brand, I guess, for how I tend to auction. <laughs> uh, I, I was sitting there when Trout was up, and I, I wanted to go 52, and it was like, you can't, you can't spend $100 on two players. Like, that's just <laughs> that's just silly if you've already yeah. got 36 <laughs> tied up into an ace. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I thought, I thought the room was going to price the other two of the big three off of Yelich, and it didn't, which, yeah. um, you know, was, was a surprise. So... Yeah, so Pat Fitzmaurice got maybe a little bit burned, but he got his guy. Like, if he believes Yelich is worth 55, then someone else going for less later doesn't matter. He didn't know that was going to happen at the time. His strategy was probably to mm-hmm. pay that much for one of those guys, and he got the first one. So I think that's a, an unlikely outcome to get discounts like that on both Trout and Acuna. Uh, but I was pretty much indifferent to which of those guys I got at, at those prices. You know, if... Somebody else would have pushed Acuna to 52 or 53. I probably would have let him go. And if I would have got Trout instead for 52, it wouldn't have bothered me. Yeah, I'm with you there, man. I, I just love, I mean, I think that it's, it makes a lot of sense to take advantage of the freewheeling aspect of an auction. Uh, right? I mean, if you have the sixth pick in a, in a in a draft, like you're not you're not getting those guys, and we know what sort of advantage guys like that can provide. Um, our, our buddy from Yahoo, Andy Barons, told me, um, God, it was a year or two ago, and he told me that they had run some studies at Yahoo uh, where they did for both for both baseball and football, like uh, what's the most successful draft slot. And he said there wasn't a ton of difference uh, from two through twelve, but the having the number one overall pick was just so stark how much better it was than the rest of the draft and how many more champions you see coming from the number one overall spot. And it really just goes down from there to the number two pick has the next most and the number three pick has the next most. And then it starts to you know get to a point where there doesn't seem to be much of a statistical correlation. And ever since he told me that, I really just try to take advantage of that fact that having one of the very best, one of the obviously very best players in any league that you're playing in is going to be a good thing for your bottom line. And it surprised me that people weren't more aggressive on those two guys, especially after we saw Yelich go at 55. I think the other part of picking first that maybe gets overlooked sometimes, I mean, you're getting the best player on the board, or at least you're getting your choice of anybody on the board, is that you're making two picks at a time Mm -hmm. the rest of the way. And that kind of flexibility when you're putting a roster together and everybody else only gets one pick at a time except for the team that picked 12th or 15th at the other end, that flexibility 
is valuable. I, I don't know how to quantify it exactly, but I feel like that's an edge where you can kind of see what the room's doing and you can almost start up a run. Like you could miss out on a run being on the end as well, but you can react to it and change course more aggressively. You know, you can, yep. the, the magnitude of how you change your plan is greater when you're putting the pieces together two at a time throughout. Like missing out on saves, right? Like it, it's okay. You miss out on some saves. Pivoting to get extra starters when you can take two back to back is that's a really nice luxury to have. And you're never going to get burned on wondering can this guy make it back to me or can one of these three guys make it back to me the way that you do in the middle of a draft. And you're going to be I'm I, at least I find myself more willing to gamble on that question if I am sitting in the middle of a draft. I've got you know four guys who I really like, but you know at, but I need this position or I need you know X Y Z, and I'm going to make the gamble that one of them is going to make it back to me. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. And you end up being totally left out on that spot. And that's just never going to happen to you on the ends. And having that certainty of knowing for sure this guy, this position, isn't going to make it back. If I need one, I need to act now. Uh, really does help you. I think it helps more in baseball. And closers are the perfect position for that, right? I mean, I I feel like I have to, like, you know, like bite my fist every single time I take a closer in a fantasy league. Because I just don't want to do it. But we still play with saves. So you got to do it. You got to get uh, at least one or feel like you feel good about having one, even though there's always someone on the board who I want more than, you know, fill in the blank closer. Uh, so that is really nice being on the end, uh, knowing that none of these closers who I'm comfortable having is going to make it back. I just got to take one now. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And I think the I'm, I'm looking at some of the the numbers from the early ish part. We're talking like players 30 through 60. So the second half hour, about every minute or so, a player was sold in the auction. We had a good pace going. That was where I think it became clear that prices weren't going to be ridiculous because we saw Steven Strasburg stop at 26. I thought he was going to go for 30. Closers topped out at 20 with Chapman at 20, I think, and maybe Josh Hader went a little earlier for a little more, but... I think pricing the market off of Chapman makes more sense than pricing it off of Hader, since Hader's a little bit different. You Darvish went for 23. Uh, Jose Altuve went for 23. Nola for 20 was one of your buys in that range that you talked about before. Like You kind of got caught with him, but I also thought he was going to go for more. I mean, I bought Luis Castillo two players later for, for 20. I thought Castillo was easily a $25 pitcher. Hung so, my head after that one. After I got Nola, and then Castillo goes two players later at the same price. I was, and I just, I didn't have the money to spend at that point. I couldn't, I couldn't justify spending another twenty plus dollars on a pitcher at that point, and I was so sad. DVR because I would much rather have Castillo than Nola. But that's the beauty of the auction, and the most frustrating thing about it at the same time. <laughs> like, you just, you don't know. Like if you, if you pass on Nola, if you don't say twenty, you let someone else get him for nineteen. You're mad at yourself for letting him go for 19, but you say, oh, I'm going to get Castillo. I'll get Castillo around 20 bucks. And then Castillo does get pushed up to 25 or 26. Basically, if that Bo Bichette scenario happens and someone in the room recognizes him and says, you know what? He's probably the last guy that it could be a top 10 starting pitcher on the board. Mm-hmm. Well, your, your plan B just got bought for more than you're willing to pay. So you either had to <laughs> overpay to get that, and then you're mad you overpaid, or right. you miss out and you have to pivot. And the flexibility afforded to you in the auction requires you to be 
good at adjusting plans quickly. It, it's it's a it's a blessing and a curse in some ways, but uh, I I enjoy it. I, I feel like I'm Same. I'm more than comfortable coming up with a, a different solution to the problem on the fly. And even though I punted saves, I I look up and down the rest of my roster and I'm like, this is a great offense. Like this team's yeah, gonna be it is. strong in all the offensive categories. Maybe a little lighter in steals than I would like. The pitching, starting pitching, to me looks really good. I, what I couldn't figure out. I think players get priced off each other throughout the auction. Early mm-hmm. especially. We talked about it with the big three. I think it happens throughout. And maybe this was auction dynamics and the amount of money people had left. But after Colton the Wolfman got Jesus Lazardo for $18, I have no idea how I got Julio Urias for 10 That just doesn't compute in my mind. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always going to be those head-scratching prices, but that was one that surprised me the most. And I think if there's one guy, maybe this is overstating it just because we're talking about him, but if there is someone who I'm comfortable saying benefits from there being a condensed season, it's him. Because I think the Dodgers have, not I think, I know the Dodgers have the depth in their starting rotation to soft pedal it on a few guys like if they want to skip a turn in the rotation for Kershaw they can do it if they want to skip a turn in the rotation for David Price they can do it and the way that they can do it is by leaning on I think specifically uh, Julio Urias because he's the guy who they can ask to maybe throw a little bit more I think they get Ross Stripling uh, involved in the mix a little bit like like uh, Walker Bueller can handle an addition an added workload but they're not going to ask that I think necessarily of him because if there's a 2020 season and if the Dodgers are um, who we expect them to be, then they're going to need Walker Bueller ready to go, healthy uh, for whatever the playoffs look like this season. I think Urias is the guy who they would ask the most out of in the regular season if they take it easy on specifically Kershaw and Price. So I think he is someone who could, relative to the rest of the league, see an increase in volume because of what this condensed season is. Uh, I think $10 was an excellent price on him. Yeah, no, thank you. I I just I I just couldn't believe it though. I, there's there's so many people in every draft and auction that I'm in who target him. It seemed very strange, but he did come out somewhat late, 146th player nominated. As I look at the the notes there, so I guess that is a point when most of the other players going were 10, 13, 14 dollar players around him. A couple twenty. That was around the time you bought Tim Anderson for twenty. Was Anderson that that player? You kind of said you you hit this point where you said if I've spent this much money, I need to have I think a bigger foundation or one more hitter. I think something along those lines is what you mentioned earlier. Was Anderson that guy that you said I got to get this guy? I got to get one more twenty dollar bat to round it out because you know he steals bases or is there anything in particular that made Anderson that guy? Yeah, it's really it's really all that. It was it was I, I felt like I needed one more hitter to feel really good about my offense and I had already had uh um Tommy Pham on the roster at that point. So with the way that steals go these days, I felt like one more guy who steals a good amount of bases is going to keep me uh, relatively competitive uh, in this uh, in, in that category. And Tim Anderson was just a blinking light at that point. Someone who I really liked going into last year. I feel like I've always been above market on Tim Anderson. And I, I think he's going to uh, be a huge source of runs also. Um, we know that Rick Renneria uh, trusts him now on top of the lineup. It was something he didn't 
didn't necessarily trust last year, and we saw him stuck in the bottom third of that order for a good chunk of the year, even though he was on his way to a batting title. Not going to be the case this season. I expect to see him and Yoan Moncada at the top of the order for the White Sox all season long, and I actually ended up with both of them. So now I've got the top two guys stacked in what I think has a chance to be the highest scoring offense in Major League Baseball. So I really like just every... He felt like the the missing puzzle piece for me. And Tim Anderson isn't a guy like Bryant or like Moncada or like uh, Denelson Lamette, who I ended up with as well, where I am for sure going after, after him, draft auction, whatever it might be. But as I was building the team... It was, I, I needed another bat. I needed a guy who could steal bases. Uh, I already had Moncada, so I felt like I could stack these one, two. He was just the perfect guy to slot into my team, and it got to a point where I had enough money to spend where I probably wasn't letting Anderson go away. I can't remember who I was bidding uh, against uh, for Anderson, but if he threw 21, I was probably going to go 22. If he threw 23, I probably would have been comfortable going up to 24 on him. Felt like it wasn't going to necessarily be the case because at that point, uh, there wasn't a ton of money still left out there, but he was someone who the auction just coagulated around and made him a perfect guy to uh, to fit into my roster. So I'm looking through the grid, and I'm thinking, if I could add plus one on players from each team, you know, which, which player would it be? You know, kind of basically picking out the best value that each person bought, or at least one of, of the best values. Uh, so let's try that. Let's, check, let's go team by team. We'll go left okay. to right across the grid. Uh, and people can do this as they go along. Uh, rtsports.com slash triple dash crown dash mixed. I think we'll put the link in the in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Uh, but let's let's go to Genstad's team. Scott Genstad, really sharp player, longtime NFBC guy. He's had a lot of success in high stakes leagues. Does the RotoWire podcast uh, on Sunday nights with, with Jeff Erickson. Uh, one of the best players that I've ever played against. I like what he did overall to the point where I have a hard time landing on one player that I would definitely plus one. But Corey Seager yes. is just one of my guys. And <laughs> even though 13 is even a little higher than I've seen him go for in some other mixed leagues where the early spending was greater, I, if I had it, I would have gone 14 in that spot. With you 100%. That was the guy who I who I zeroed in on as I was scanning up and down his team. I was in that bidding, I, I think, till the end. I let him go because I felt like uh, I could use a little bit more speed. But 13 is an excellent price. 14, I, for me, is still a very good price on Corey Seager. Uh, we forget just how good this guy was pre-Tommy John. And we started to see it toward the end of last season again. He's a guy who I've been going after across the board. I really like that one. Yeah, I think the... The pitching also, like Clevenger, 25, that seemed like a bargain. That could have been a, a contender for the plus one. Verlander, even at 25, I expected him to go for more. So uh, plenty to choose from, but I'm with you on Corey Seager. Uh, on your roster, player, I would plus one right away. Uh, Mancata, definitely in the contention for that. But Tommy Pham is, is one of my guys, and Paddock would have been on that list as well, but I think Tommy Pham should have gone for a couple bucks more than he did. So I thought that was one of your your better um, pricey-ish buys, I guess we'll say. One, one of your non-bargain buys that actually was, I think, discounted. What surprised me about where it ended on him was that there were very few um, like reliable 
sure thing bets left at that point. I remember zeroing in on he and uh, Eloy Jimenez and really wanting one of those two guys uh, on my team. And I was willing to fight for him because I felt like I did need another bet. And I was surprised that it ended uh, where it did on Fam. Jimenez was still out there. Jimenez ended up uh, being thrown out a little bit later than Fam. But uh, not only uh, unique with where he was at in our auction, but just a unique player, period. I mean, how many guys can you uh, pretty reliably count on to give you like a 2015 season with pretty good rates? So uh, that, that was one I felt uh, very good about for sure. Let's take a look at the roster of Colton and the Wolfman. Clay Colton and Rick Wolf, uh, dynamic duo. Tons of titles over the years, labor, tout wars, uh, really good players, and they just didn't seem to make mistakes. And I've, I've noticed that about them in auctions. I've done with them before, but you look at the prices across the board on their team, it's a little bit like Genstad's team where you could pick probably seven or eight players and bump them up a dollar. Uh, was there one that really stands out to you, though? Um, you know... It's. It, it, I agree with you that like no one, no one here is uh, is like crazily priced, and they did a good job of of flattening everything out. There also aren't a lot of players that I like that really get my juices flowing on this team. If I had to pick one, though, I think the one that stands out is probably uh, Shohei Otani, um, just because of the uh, um, Swiss Army knife uh, that he can be for fantasy uh, owners this season. Uh, it's, this is a league where you get just the one Otani. You can use him as a pitcher. You can use him as a hitter. He went for $17. And, I mean, we've seen Shohei Otani be a great pitcher. We've seen him be a great hitter. I absolutely Love this guy. Uh, the fact that this is weekly is going to make it a little bit tricky to decide how they're going to use him. But, man, I mean, what a weapon he can be. And that was someone who I was in on. I believe I threw him out. I believe I'm the person who nominated him. And uh, I was trying out a strategy where I was nominating guys who I wanted to get on my team just because I wanted them out there. I wanted to buy them. I wanted to know what I was dealing with when other people were nominating. Um, and, and Otani was one of those guys who fit that bill for me. Uh, he was someone who, if I had the money, I probably would have kept bidding on. Yeah, I think – the shortened season just gives him that extra time to get completely healthy. So I think that's a, a great choice to bump him up plus one. I think Michael Conforto at 13 stands out to me as a really solid buy. So I, I'd, I'd plus one that for sure and push him at least to 14 and see if that's enough to get him. Uh, our friend Todd Zola from Masters Ball from Rotowire. You know, this is I'm starting to realize like the room was conservative because the players aren't over aggressive clowns like me like they're they're very these are very level-headed people that have joined this league this year um and that's why you look at their teams you're like yep that that price makes sense that price makes sense uh, is marcus simeon at 21 underpriced or is that yes i, I mean I, I don't know if he's gonna repeat last year scaling it down for fewer games of course but i still think there's this underappreciation for him maybe we talked about it a few weeks ago but I'm surprised to see that he's not a 24 or 25 dollar player in this format yep he was the one he was one of the couple who I thought could have been uh, thrown out there as a guy to plus one what I love about Marcus Simeon is he had um he you know he had his first you know maybe we call it a mini breakout then he regressed and then he has the huge breakout last year and when you see a guy follow that path you see someone who I think we can point to and say, this guy understands the mental side of the game. And you love to see a player put that together, put together the physical side and the mental side. Marcus Simeon has proved to us that he can do that. And so it gives me a ton of confidence in him going forward. Maybe not the exact production on a per-game basis that he had last year, but there are no more 
I think, backslides for Marcus Semien. So he was someone who I thought you could have maybe gone the extra dollar on. And then someone else to point out um, on this team, Mike Yastrzemski. Uh, he's been a target of mine uh, in every single uh, draft and auction that I've done. Great stat cast numbers, hits the ball really hard. Uh, no doubt about uh, his playing time in San Francisco. Still hit for some pretty good power last year, and I think that that is something we could see uh, take a step forward this season. Yeah, I'm with you. I think uh, especially if they're playing in Arizona, I mean, his power mm-hmm. potential goes up quite a bit. Uh, Lorenzo Kane at 11 seemed a little bit low to me, and, and Sonny Gray, clearly one of my guys, he went for 15. I would have pushed him to 16 at that point. I think I already had Scherzer and Castillo, so pushing another player into the high teens wasn't really uh, a thing I could do on the pitching front. Uh, James Anderson from Rotowire got a lot of power early. He got a nice discount on Oakland's Chris Davis at 10. That jumped out to me. I think he threw Austin Riley really early and got him for three. So that was pretty savvy. Uh, but Brandon Lau for two. One of the end game buys when I had a little more money left. And I, I, I don't know what I was doing. I, I think I just got caught looking at the screen or if I was looking at the live stream chat. Something, something might have distracted me. But I definitely <laughs> wanted to hit plus one on Brandon Lau. I think $2 is a, a great bargain for him as a, a cheap second baseman who you know is at least going to play on the big side of a platoon, even if he has to sit against lefties. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a great price to get. I mean, you're, you, even if he sits against lefties, like, you know, you're, you're only paying two bucks for him. So whatever, who cares? The one that stands out to me, though, Tyler Glasnow. We've got, we might have to call him Kevin Cash uh, Anderson here because he's got Blake Snell, Tyler Glasnow, and Charlie Morton as his top three starting pitchers. But Glasnow, the one for me, I mean, he was going to win the Cy Young Award uh, last year if he didn't get hurt. And uh, I think he, with that, just that, Big fastball and that great curveball that he has this skills foundation uh, that really plays well in Major League Baseball 2020. So I love this guy. He's been someone who I've been really going after hard across the board. And uh, to see him only go for $18 really stung. I like him better than Aaron Nola. And Aaron Nola, as we have already talked about, plenty uh, went for 20 to me. Um, if you could told me that I could have had uh, saved a buck and got Tyler Glass now, I for sure would have held back. I Love this guy. If there is one guy who is going, you know, at SP 20 to 25, who I felt very comfortable betting on having a top five season, it would be Tyler Glass now. So I love that buy. Yeah, it was a nice spot for him as well. Uh, Alex Becky from Baseball HQ, I, I thought loaded up his roster with young talent in the later part of the auction. Joe Adele for four, Dylan Carlson for three. Uh, Gavin Lux for 11, I think was a bidding war with me. I think that got up to a point where it was... Alex and I both had a lot of money left, so if if one of us was going to come away with Lux, it wasn't going to be at a steep discount. But uh, Michael Kopech for three, Dylan Cease for three, AJ Puck for four. I mean, just Carter Carter Keboom. Yeah, Carter Keboom up there for three. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I like I like that approach because he he didn't spend a ton on his top players. He got Javi Baez at twenty eight, Pete Alonso at twenty eight, Alex Bregman at thirty two, Rizzo at twenty four. Gary Sanchez at 17, and then he went Cole and Bueller, 39 and 33, to start his rotation. So uh, stars and scrubs, but not aggressive with the hitters, more balanced with the hitters. I think the strategy can work really well. Uh, Of all those players, those cheap players especially, Dylan Carlson at three is the one that I really wanted to push the extra dollar on. I, I, I thought Carlson should have gone for six or seven, actually, because I'm pretty convinced they have to use him 
as a regular part of that lineup in St. Louis this year. I agree, and especially if this ends up being a universal DH situation in 2020 where the Cardinals can get another one of those outfield bats in the lineup every single game, then I don't see how Carlson's not an everyday player. So I thought that was a great one. Looking in the rotation, I really like Michael Kopech. I mean, if you're telling me that a uh, any guy who comes into the majors who can you know throw 100 pretty regularly, I'm going to be interested in, and uh, I, I think that uh, that he is just worth the dart even if that's all it ends up being so if I had a few extra bucks I would have been uh, going after Kopech I don't think he should have been bid up to like seven or eight but getting him at three or four or even five I would have felt very good about absolutely uh, Steve Cozzolino is uh, a good friend of a lot of us in the industry he runs a league called the Gotham Diamond District it's like a New York home league Colton the Wolfman playing it Nando DeFino plays in it uh, I think Derek Cardi was joining this year I was actually going to join this year. That league didn't happen. It was going to be Tell Wars weekend uh, because I don't have a home league in Wisconsin. So I was kind of adopted into their home league this year. <laughs> so that was going to be a lot of fun. But uh, but Kaz is in, in this league this year now. And I thought he built a great team. Like He kind of pulled the Alex Becky in that he wasn't overspending early. He didn't go quite as expensive with his two aces. He went Strasburg at 26, Darvish at 23. Those were great prices. Nelson Cruz at 24. Springer at 22, Hira at 24, Freddie Freeman at 32. Just a very disciplined core overall. You got some saves with Kenley Jansen at 14. Even though there's risk with Kenley Jansen, based on the way my team fell into place, that was definitely a plus one consideration for me. Uh, But Yu Darvish at 23 is the guy that I think I would probably put the plus one on at this point. It's really close between Darvish and Hira for me. Yeah, they're both in that. I really like this team. I I like this team a lot because I think you can make a great argument for either of them as the plus one guy, but that's not going to be the the route I go. Nelson Cruz, man. I mean, Nelson Cruz in a two-utility league, I think should have gone for – I mean, I would have gone plus three or four on Nelson Cruz uh, if I could have, and maybe I could have. I can't remember when he came uh, off the board, but uh, this is a guy who I think we are seeing him – make a run. I've said for a while now that the best age 35 to 40 run we've ever seen in Major League history was by David Ortiz. I just pulled up the baseball reference uh, uh, on that, and in those age 35 to 40 seasons, Ortiz hit 296, 386, 567 with per 162 averages of 38 homers and 119 RBIs. So far, Nelson Cruz has had his age 35 through 38 seasons. 285, 366, 560 with per 162 of 45 homers and 121 RBI. I mean, I think Nelson Cruz is going to make a run at the David Ortiz age 35 to age 40 uh, careers path. And that's uh, just incredible. And in a, t- at least when you're in a one utility league, you lock up that utility spot on Nelson Cruz. But in two utility, I think he should have gone for more. I mean, this was just a, a hell of a buy. Maybe my favorite buy on the board, period. Yeah, just. Uh, quite a few players went to Steve, and I sat there and said, well, that was a good buy, a good price, good player. Uh, just thought he did a really nice job. Uh, Jason Collette from Rotowire and from Fangraphs, uh, he built a nice team as well. I got the first player nominated, Victor Robles, for 19. Uh, it's always funny when it's not one of the studs. I mean, Robles is a, is a good player. Uh, I actually thought Robles was going to go for a little more, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think he's the plus one for me in this case. Uh, as I look at this roster... Bellinger at 43, I think you could have easily justified a little more on him based on the way the top players uh, went out. And Luke Weaver at 8 was one that I was in on the bidding at. 
I bowed out and at the time felt like I was going to regret it. And a few days later, I regret it. I, I think Luke Weaver <laughs> definitely should have gone for a little bit more. I think a plus one here is, is going to Weaver, even though Bellinger's a strong candidate as well. Oh, you're killing me because I thought that uh, I thought I was going to be unique by by uh, uh, zeroing in on Weaver, but I'm with you. I, I think that you know the, the strikeout rate that we saw last year from him is going to be something that's for real so long as he stays healthy. I really like his pitch mix. He felt like a guy who finally found himself last year. I really do like Luke Weaver. I thought that was uh, you know a great move for him to get out to uh, to get out to Arizona in that trade from St. Louis. So I really think that that was uh, that was a great buy and someone who you know just flies under the radar, just eight bucks, just nine bucks if we're plus oneing him and ends up giving you a, a very easy profit at the price tag there just for the sake of having someone else in this discussion. Very savvy move by Jason nominating Shed Long when he did. You probably weren't going to get plus one on Shed Long. The the Mariners are committed to him at second base. Uh, if things go very, if things go well for him, you know he's going to be out there every single day. If things don't go well, all Jason did was spend a buck on him. I like the skill set. Uh, we obviously had to fill a middle infield spot in this as well. So I really like that. I wish I would have thought of it earlier uh, because I think Shed Long could end up being one of the better one dollar players that we see in this auction. Yeah, I do like Shed as one of the end game buys because there weren't as many great values uh, like we said a bit earlier. Let's go to Rob Silver and Vlad Sedler, a very dynamic tandem. Uh, Vlad, of course, with uh, Guru Elite, and Rob Silver, uh, a very accomplished NFBC player. He won an overall event, the main, a couple seasons ago. Uh, so two very sharp players, and just like most of the rosters we've talked about, plenty of players to choose from. Buxton at 14 He's one of my guys. It's, it's really, really hard for me not to put the plus one on him. Uh, but Miguel and Duhar in a two utility league for $3? Come on. Like, that's silly. <laughs> How is he not nine, ten bucks at least? He was $3, DVR. $3, not two. Can't believe this. <laughs> I know, I know, and he's gonna he's gonna uh, qualify in in the outfield eventually. I mean, they're the Yankees sound like they want to play him uh, in left field at least, get him enough run to to maybe get him uh, some outfield eligibility in fantasy leagues. That, that that's a great choice. I also thought uh, that Rich Hill at a buck. Uh, probably not going to miss any time once the 2020 season does start. Maybe he misses some time in the season with his uh, injury history and advanced age, but you can't go wrong for it with Rich Hill at one buck. You can't go wrong with Rich Hill at two bucks. I think you have to get up to about five bucks before you're feeling a little bit queasy about what you spent on him. Let's go to Nick Pollock's team. Uh, Nick runs the pitcher list. The pitcher list just won the baseball pods uh, bracket too. So congrats, yes, congratulations, to Nick and Alex Fast and the great team over at Pitcher List on that win. Uh, the pitching that Nick put together, shock! it's just a complete stunner. The guy who started a site called Pitcher List ended up with a pitching staff that I like. Uh, Frankie Manas at 11, <laughs> Kluber at 10, Carrasco at 9, Kenta Maeda at 8, Jose Urquidy at 5. I want plus 2 or 3 on all of them. Like, I, <laughs> ugh, I, I, I think there are some minor flaws potentially with the bats. I think overall, though, he, he still put a good offense together, too. And man, Eugenio Suarez at 17, if he's completely healthy, that's a steal as well. I mean, take your pick. I, I think of all those pitchers, Maeda at 8 is the one that I would most confidently go the extra dollar for, seeing plenty of room for profit. But pretty much any one of those first four starters, I think, are, are worthy of, of being bumped up. 
Yeah, Maeda, good offense at his back. Uh, we, we expect him to have a pretty strong bullpen filling in behind him as well, protecting wins that he uh, or leads that he gives uh, to the bullpen. So I agree with you there, and I agree with all those guys um, that you could have easily gone an extra buck or two on those guys and felt totally good about it. So I'll look at those hitters. I was the person who nominated a Eugenio Suarez. I remember it well because I already had Bryant and Moncada at that point. So I'm like, all right, let's get some let's get some dollars out there. Let's get some people to spend on a really good third baseman. And I was stunned that it stopped at $17 on a Eugenio Suarez. Uh, if, if I could have uh, done that, if I could have you know, sunk another 20 bucks into a position that I already had locked up, I for sure uh, would have done it on a Eugenio Suarez. And then a Eugenio Suarez's new teammate, Nick Castellanos, going for $19. Um, even if this season doesn't get played at the home parks and he doesn't get the bump that we saw that we expected him to get from Great American Ballpark, just an underappreciated player, I think, until he got that exposure uh, with the Cubs in the second half last year. Nineteen dollars more than a fair price for him. Pat Fitzmaurice, uh, he hosts Fitz on Fantasy, uh, it's a podcast, and uh, he's a contributor to thefootballgirl.com. Interesting uh, thing with with Pat is is I I just didn't realize he played. A lot of fantasy baseball. I I don't know why I didn't think he did. I just assumed he was a football guy for some reason, and uh, he built a really nice team. Now I I think the the guy who I like the most on his team as a plus one is Michael Brantley at thirteen. I've I think a very obvious just been one slapping the table all draft season. <laughs> People have it wrong with Michael Brantley, uh, but after that fifty five dollar Yelich buy. He settled in quite a bit. Grinky at 23, Woodruff at 18, Soroka at 15, Lance Lynn at 13, got saves with a hand in Iglesias. I just I thought he built a really well-balanced team, and I thought, here we go. He's going all-in stars and scrubs, but after that Yelich buy, he, he didn't really follow that plan. Yeah, um, Brantley's the obvious one. I mean, the guy's going to roll out of bed and hit 300, um, so you got to love uh, getting Michael Brantley. The other one I would throw out there, is Ross Stripling, a guy who I think I think this broke my 100% Ross Stripling ownership this season. <laughs> I just think he's he's going to start. He's going to start games there. I um, you know with that obviously some conversations uh, with our with our Dodgers beat writer Pedro Mora about this, but it's just obvious that they can lean on that pitching depth and in a condensed season use Stripling in a way that. Uh, is going to be very lucrative in fantasy leagues. He's going to get some starts. He's going to uh, pitch well out of the bullpen, as he always has. He's a guy who never makes any trouble about his role. I really like Ross Stripling, and even if he only gets you know five starts or whatever it might be this season, two bucks on Ross Stripling with that team around him, really nice buy. I mean, if Fitz only spent a buck on him, I'm saying even two bucks would have been a really nice buy. Yeah, Fitz is one of those people, I think I need to meet him uh, because uh, he's a Milwaukee native, you, but he's stuck yeah. in the northwest suburbs and... I think we'd have a, of Chicago. a lot in common. <laughs> you do. I know Fitz and I um, you know, worked together at Sports Illustrated for a while. Fitz and I did a podcast together. Uh, he is a great guy. Uh, he, he, we would get together to do, uh, to do our football podcast, and all the guy wanted to talk about uh, right at the, uh, at the start of it was what was going on in his uh, AL-only league. So, yes, he is uh, definitely a baseball guy as well. All right. Well, we're going to have to get him on our show at some point just to, uh, just to talk shop with him. Uh, Brent Hershey from Baseball HQ, along with uh, Ray Murphy, I think they're splitting up the auctions, but this one was all Brent uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, they do an awesome job at the live events and with Baseball HQ itself, of course. Uh, they co-manage that uh, whole operation at this point. Uh, Elvis Andrews at 11 late was one that I I was mad when that happened because cheap speed from a player who's going to play every day should not come for $11. So, 
that one jumped off the page, but man, like it's still jarring to see Paul Goldschmidt as a $25 player. Mm-hmm. Uh, AJ Pollock for a dollar is one of the, the $1 guys I really liked. Uh, even Jeff McNeil at 19, Jordan Alvarez for 22. Plenty of, of good bargains on this roster, but Elvis Andrews at 11 in this landscape was the one that I thought deserved the plus one. Yeah, and I'll throw another one out there. Actually, I'm going to give you two on this team, and uh, one really cheap guy and one sort of uh, bending the rules in what we're playing here. So the first one uh, is Emilio Pagan. They got him for a buck. Even if he doesn't save a game, he's going to have good rates. He's going to strike out a lot of guys, and he's the ready-made closer replacement in San Diego if uh, if that ends up uh, being something that is needed. So really like a guy like that in this sort of format at a dollar or two. And then I'm actually going to go into our reserve round draft. They picked pretty late, I want to say, and they got Yoannis Cespedes, and like, why the hell not? So uh, to not have one of the early picks in the reserve rounds and still end up with Yoannis Cespedes, who maybe gets a whole lot of run for the Mets this year, I thought was a nice pick by them. Yeah, I, I like that pick as well. They also got me on Kyle Lewis. I, I wanted to get Kyle Lewis in reserves, and uh, Brent made that pick round two, round three of reserves. can't remember when exactly it was. Uh, Ian Kahn. He, of course, played George Washington on turn, Washington Spies. He's one of the co-hosts on Under the Radar, this very podcast on Wednesdays. Uh, Very, very good player. I mean, I can't really say enough about how good Ian is. And a lot of of the success I've seen him have is is also trading, and it's in in Dynasty Leagues as well. Um, So I'm I'm really curious to see how he fares in this league, and and, uh, I think AL Labor is the league he's in this year as well. He won Tout Wars last year's first year in it. He was in the head-to-head mix, so he's he's good in every format, if not uh, elite in every format. His team is, as you'd expect, very good. The the player that I I, I thought was going to go for more here, that I, I definitely would have spent more on if I could, was actually Clayton Kershaw. How, how is Clayton Kershaw not a $30 player? It's kind of an extension of the, the conversation you and I had last week on this show. 24 on Kershaw is a steal. Yeah, Kershaw was Kershaw was 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 great at twenty four, and you look at that that group of pitchers. We have a lot of pitchers clustered right around that price point, and he just feels like the best one, the surest thing of the group of pitchers there. So whenever you're looking at a group of pitchers at the same price point, and you can feel confident that no doubt about it, I got the best one. You got to feel pretty good about what you've done. So I'm sure Ian feels that way about Kershaw. He also got Cattell Marte at twenty three dollars. I don't think that like 23 was this amazing bargain for Cattell Marte, but I just want to take another opportunity, and I've taken pretty much every one I've got this season, to say that Cattell Marte, what we saw last year, that's the player. That's the guy who he is, and he was building toward that season for years and years, and there is no reason to uh, just automatically assume there's going to be some regression to what he was previously on the statistical bottom line from what he did last year. Last year is the player we've been waiting to see happen, and now that it's here, it is here to stay. So I would have gone 24 on him had I been able to. I don't think it's a this uh, phenomenal bargain we should be you know writing stories about, but $23, an excellent buy. Cattell Marte, absolutely for real. Yeah, I, I like that price a lot on Cattell Marte. Definitely a, a good good value, and nice to have that flexibility to move him between second base and the outfield as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Pianowski, our friend over at Yahoo, plays every fantasy sport, plays them all very well. Great writer as well. Great guest we had on just a couple weeks ago. Uh, David Dahl at five. That, uh, part of that was timing, but... 
even if the Rockies don't play in Colorado this year, David Dahl is a good player. Like I, I just don't. It, it's all injuries. Like there's there's really nothing else there. He's mm-hmm. a very good player who could still get better too. So at five dollars, absolutely. I think pushing him up to seven, eight, nine bucks even would have been more than appropriate in this league. I'll go Matthew Boyd here. He got uh, Pino got Boyd at ten bucks. Eleven bucks is an easy amount to spend uh, for a guy who, at the very least, is going to give you plenty of strikeouts. And I'm willing to pay that for the strikeouts. And I think we see first half Matthew Boyd uh, for the balance of this season rather than second half. And it really was a stark difference first half to second half. And you know that can be expected for a guy who was having some first time success, who was setting you know career highs across the board the way that Boyd was. Now with that season under his belt, I think we see more of the first half version than the second half this season. Yeah, I think it's interesting too uh, with the way Boyd was picking up a little velocity this spring. That that opens up. A little more for him as well. Uh, three Rockies hitters for PNL: yeah. Arenado, thirty-six; yeah. Story, thirty-six; and Dahl at five. All right, my roster's last. Uh, who would you plus one off my roster? Um, so one guy who I was in the bidding for you with is the guy who I would plus one here. Uh, it's Carlos Correa. You got him at fourteen dollars. I know injuries are always going to be a question for Carlos Correa, but what is not a question, just like you talked about with Dahl, is production when he is healthy. I really like Carlos Correa. I mean, we saw it last year, another uh, season where he played just a little bit more than half the year, but what he gave you was incredible. And I think this is the sort of year where you can make a bet on a guy who has had some injury questions, being able to stay healthy because you're not asking for 162 games or 150 games, whatever the case might be for a guy who is probably going to get an off day here or there. You're just asking for you know, maybe 70 games, 80 games. And if Carlos Correa does what he does on a per-game basis for what ends up being a full season, right? I mean, I'll give me Carlos Correa's full season against a lot of players' full seasons, right? So I think that getting him at that $14 price uh, could end up being, when you look at Bo Bichette at 31 and Alberto Mondesi at 26, Trevor Story at 36, you got Carlos Correa for 14. That could be a huge bargain this season. Yeah, I still think the skills are, are there. It's a little bit like the doll thinking where injuries have just robbed him of a lot of production. And uh, at 14, I was really happy to get him. Uh, it kept me from getting Corey Seager, who we mentioned at the beginning of this segment as uh, a middle infielder because I, I didn't want to kind of double down with that type of player. Probably could have got away with it, though, in hindsight. I spent 8 bucks on Paul DeYoung later, so a few extra dollars to get Seager may have been worth it probably would have just cost me uh, something else on the bottom end of the roster. Anyway, we will have the results grid linked up in the show description. Hopefully you find uh, the results enjoyable or helpful in some way. You can find us on Twitter. He's at M. Beller. I'm at Derek Van Riper. This podcast is available pretty much anywhere you want to listen to pods, but if you're on a platform where you can leave a rating and review, we'd really appreciate it if you took the time to do that. Thanks to the many of you who've already done that for us. Uh, if you would like a 90-day free trial to The Athletic, you can get that at theathletic.com slash free 90 days. And if you are in a position to sign up for a subscription, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. Thank you to all of you for subscribing. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, we appreciate you. Uh, stay safe. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Wednesday with Under the Radar. Have a great weekend. Thank you.